if uh, you need a Bible to join us in this evening's study, just raise your hand and we'll make sure that you get one. Uh, you're welcome to keep that. I want everybody to have their own Bible. Uh, Isaiah chapter 6 is where we are this evening. Uh, classic passage from the book of Isaiah. A lot of things that are quite remarkable and descript in their uh, understanding from the scripture. So as we begin, uh, we have this vision of the Lord that Isaiah declares to us in verse 1. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings with Two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and two he flew. There's uh, several things there uh, to consider in the very beginning when it says, in the year that King Uzziah died. King Uzziah of Judah uh, is a long, distinguished reign that occurs in uh, all of the history of uh, the southern tribes, the two southern tribes of Israel, they're known as Judah. It's a remarkable reign in both good ways and bad ways. So in Second Chronicles 26 and in Second Kings 15, 1 through 7, uh, you see Uzziah also described as Azariah in Second Kings chapter 15. So that can create some confusion uh, Uzziah began his reign at 16 years old, reigned for 52 years, and was declared to be a good king. That is extremely gracious on the part of God, considering uh, the history of things that you have to see go on in his life. A number of things we're going to uh, see in this are, are really quite remarkable. Second Kings 15 verse 3 says he did what was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah had done. So, you know, we can appreciate it whenever the Lord tells us there is a positive aspect to a person's life such as Uzziah. But unfortunately, Uzziah's life ended tragically. So Second Chronicles 26, 16 tells us, but when he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction, and he transgressed against the Lord his God by entering the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. God struck Uzziah with leprosy, and he lived as an isolated leper until his death uh, because of that. When he was strong, his heart was lifted up. I think every one of us can identify with that. That when the way that I identify with it most isn't even necessarily what we might consider pride as much as it is neglect. When things are going good, then we aren't as concerned about where we're at in our relationship with the Lord. When things are challenging, oh, we're right on our face. We're pouring our heart out to God. Uh, that that actually tells us what our weakness is all of the time. 
you know that that we're more reliant upon our flesh than we are the Lord. And once that's been exposed to us, unfortunately, then we're responsible to do something about it. You know, once you know this is, you know, your character, once you understand, oh, this is my weakness, this is my flaw, then it becomes my responsibility to stay on my face, uh, to continuously seek the Lord and ask him to keep me from that pride and to keep myself from those moments of, you know, perceived neglect where, you know, I'm, I'm just not doing the things I should be doing because it's, it's, uh, you know, I, I got that attitude like, I've got it. I don't need any help. I'm going to be okay. And instead, um, you know, you, you can stumble into an area that uh, doesn't, you know, you shouldn't be there. You know, wrong place, wrong time. Uh, Uzziah is not a priest and has not been called to the Lord. This is a complete violation of God's law and God's word in front of the nation. So, once he's you know failed publicly, we can assume this failure, this level of failure was in his heart prior to this moment. It's not like you're just strolling by the temple one day and you say, hey, I think I'll just go in there. There's been a thing building in the mind for some time that leads to the moment where you carry out something like this. Once you've carried out something like this and it becomes evident to everyone, I think that's part of the reason that God left him in the state of leprosy throughout the remainder of his life, not as a cruel punishment, as the continuous reminder of, yeah, I love you, even in this literal decomposing state that you're in. I love you. And I'm, I'm going to keep you in this state so that you are going to have to rely upon me for the rest of your days. You know, you, you think about Jacob. And, uh, you know, you see that contending with God all along the way. You come down to that final moment where he's there in the wilderness and he's wrestling with the angel of the Lord. And, you know, I mean, at what point does that become logical? You know, I can take this guy. You know, I just, it's weird. And and so he's wrestling with God. And, and then he comes to that place where he's defeated. And all he's doing now is just hanging on in his destroyed state and you know the angel of the lord says you need to let go and uh he says i'm not going to let go until you bless me and the lord reaches down and touches his hip and cripples him for life and says there's your blessing pal i'm paraphrasing but that's literally what he was saying to him is here here's your but you want oh you, you won't let go until i blessed you here let me cripple you think about this for just a minute dear saints we take things the wrong way so very often where we're, we're wanting and desiring God's blessing and what we're praying for is comfort and ease. And he's saying, no, no comfort and ease for you because you're my child. Uh, what you're going to get is corrective discipline. And that's going to be the evidence in your life that you belong to me. You're going to have to walk with this limp for the rest of your life. You know, Smooth sailing, you know, that's that's not for many of us. Uh, the rest of us have to, you know, gut it out in the trenches. So in the year King Uzziah died, that says a lot. He's a great, wise king that died, also king with tragic end. A great, 
uh, reason. He's discouraged and disillusioned at the death of King Uzziah. The great king had passed away. His life ended tragically. You know, where is the Lord in all of this is sort of the mindset that the nation and the culture and even Isaiah can be in. And, you know, then there comes that answer. I saw the Lord seated on his throne. You know, you, when you have somebody who's leading the people in and towards godliness and suddenly they're taken from the picture, you know, that sensation, that knee-jerk reaction of what in the world just happened? You know, how could God possibly be involved in, in this tragedy that I'm currently experiencing? This can't, this can't possibly be, right? This can't possibly be the will of God. And, you know, we can get too focused on human beings. We can get too focused on God's ministers. We, we can look at them as being the source of our salvation, the source of our provision. And they are not. We are not. I am not. You know, at, The best thing I can possibly be is a road sign. That's it. That's pointing at the proper direction. That's pointing at Jesus Christ. That's the best thing I can be. You know, I, I uh, early on had a, a man in ministry uh, you know, who said to me, you know, as a pastor, uh, what you need to be is, you know, my best friend. And I said, well, you're one person in a large church. So if I become your best friend, then everyone else that I can't be their best friend is going to feel shunned. So thinking that the pastor or the minister or the Sunday school teacher or the person who's discipling you is the answer leaves that so limited. So limited. Adopting that mindset as someone who shares their faith. You know, I, I, I've watched people do this <clears throat> where that's what they wanted from a pastor or a minister was they desired and they felt let down <clears throat> that that person couldn't accomplish what they wanted. So then as they begin to work in other people's lives, which inevitably we all will, they start trying to fulfill that. Like, like this person failed me in this way, so that's what I'm going to do. And now you're going to go be that. And somebody, what you're going to discover in the process is your leprosy. The failure of your flesh. It might be not be the same as the person who failed you, but you'll have your own failures. And you'll let the people down. The Lord isn't going to let anybody down. You know, in this tragedy, in this loss, where's God? What's going on? He's the same place he's always been. He's seated upon his throne. His train is high and lifted up. And nothing about his glory is diminished in any way. How how short-sighted of us to fix our attention on a human being. That's a very unfortunate thing that we see there. Now, <clears throat> the fact that these seraphim are described here, a lot of people want to focus on the angels. And boy, you can range all over the scripture and collect all kinds of bits and pieces about angels and their ministries. I just want to point something out here. 
<clears throat> they're using two-thirds of their capabilities to cover their, crea their own creation. Two-thirds of their wings are, are being used to shield their created frame. Okay? One-third is being used to fulfill their purpose of flying and declaring their ministry before the Lord. They're covering their feet so you don't see their created frame, and they're covering their faces, their eyes, that they not look upon the Lord in humility. They have profound reverence. Oh, that we were using two-thirds of our energies to know and discover the reverence for the Lord. And so very often what we do is we're like Martha, who uses 100% to engage in the work. You know, all six wings are going at the same time. Burning the candle at both ends. Discovering the reverence and humility for the Lord. There's a great example here. Why not use all six wings? Wouldn't that be more, more proficient? Why create a creature that has six wings when they're not going to use, you know, four of them for flight? It just doesn't make a lot of sense from a human perspective. There's very astute uh, observation there that they are shielding their created frame and they are shielding themselves from the Lord in his glory and in his majesty. And then what do they say here? Holy, holy, holy in verse 3. The Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They're declaring that continuously is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So Isaiah, nation of Israel, everyone that missed it, yes, Uzziah is dead. But all of creation is filled with his glory. Nothing, nothing has been diminished. It's always astonishing to me. No matter what direction we look to realize God's majesty in creation. If you look up into the heavens as far as you can see with whatever capability you have, you know, created or uh, mechanical, you're going to discover the power and the beauty and the glory of God. If you go the opposite direction and look into the depths of creation, into the microscopic world, you're going to find the exact same thing. God's majestic glory is astonishing. Every single thing. Yeah, I just read a quick thing on skin the other day again. It just subject came up and I ended up doing that rabbit trail thing and you go all the way down like, wow, this is like astonishing. And I was reminded again, you know, that the 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 surface of our skin is actually dead. So that's there as a protective layer so that everything that's underneath it uh, can continue to function and grow. And so growing in that way, you know, you're shedding off that outer layer continuously and constantly. But inside your ear, the skin has to grow entirely different.
Because if it grew that way, it would have closed off your hearing and nearly within a matter of days of being born. You know, if it was growing from the bottom and up to the top and filling in the ear canal, instead it grows from the back of the ear canal out to the outside of your ear. God, God understanding that you can't, you can't have the ear inside that cylinder growing in that same way would close the cylinder off. So it has to grow from the inside of the cylinder outward. The new layers are being formed and pushing outward. The, the ear canals continuously open. It's remarkable. Constantly. You know, along that same line, uh, in my mind, which is, you know, a pretty weird little play playground. But anyway, um, <clears throat> the, the fact that, you know, all other things, when in liquid form, when they become a solid, right, like, you know, metals, things of that nature, um, sink, you know, down through. The water does the exact opposite. As it becomes solid, it floats to the surface. If it didn't function that way, the exact opposite of everything else, <clears throat> if, if it, as it became a solid, it sank down through, became more dense, and sank to the bottom, then the lakes and oceans would have filled with ice. The ice would have sank to the bottom. Everything would have become solid ice. This planet would have frozen over long ago. No life. Constant genius in everything that God creates. No matter where you look, you're guaranteed you're going to be astonished. I'll just throw that one on the floor and stomp on it over and over again. Anybody else? Was it two weeks ago we started like broadcasting on the screen? That was, that was good. That was good. Uh, so, the whole earth is full of his glory. And apparently the devil doesn't want you to pay attention to that. It says, and the posts of the door were shaken by, by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. Uh, the, the power of the voice, you know, shakes the pillars where they're standing. I, I, I'm always impressed with that level of volume. I got to play with dynamite a lot uh, when I was building towers. And... Uh, I, I actually uh, got to work with the dynamite company on one occasion. It was safe of enough of a setting that I got to pull the trigger. And, uh, man, when you squeeze that thing in the earth, I felt the concussion from the dynamite as it rips through the earth. I felt that many times working, blowing stuff up with those guys. But when you squeeze that trigger and it goes off and you have that simultaneous sensation of this just caused that concussion in your body. That's that's an interesting thing. You know, the voice speaks and the place shakes. That that simultaneous uh, experience is really a remarkable thing. The power that is there. I, I think of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and they arrive with the cohort of six hundred Roman soldiers. And then the the guards and temple, um, you know, uh, security that comes with them to arrest Jesus. And Jesus says to them, you know, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he gives them that Old Testament name of God, I am. And it knocks them all to the ground. You know, I, I just, uh, 
it's going to be impressive. It's going to be impressive to be in the presence of God. You know, I, I, in my younger years, I spent a lot of money getting to concerts to watch measly little men try to imitate God. You know, 50,000 watts of just shake Cumberland County Civic Center and trying to impress everybody with the smoke and, the, you know, the fire and all that was rock and roll. Oh, I, I read Revelation and that glass diamond mirrored floor and a throne room so large that millions times millions fill the room. And he's there in the center and the lightning literally peeling off his throne and the music as we all throng and sing together. Isn't it a wonderful thing to hear the thunderous anthem of people all singing praise at the same time? You know, this is this is just a foreshadow. And his house is filled with smoke. And how many times do we see that in the scripture where the Lord comes in his appearance and the Shekinah glory and the smoke of the Lord drives everybody out of the temple. His presence there is a gracious thing, that smoke. No shielding, presence of the Lord. Us in our sinful frame equals death. He's shielding us from his majesty because we can't handle it. So I said, woe is me. For I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Don't think of Isaiah as a man who used foul language. Don't think of Isaiah as a man who said perverse things. Think more of it like the Lord saying, let every man be a liar. And God alone is the truth. You know, the things we say and we do constantly that just come from our humanness, that flow out of our own childish arrogance. And you stand in the presence of perfection and realize just how filthy you are, just how completely diabolical. We are. That's what we're seeing here. This man is dedicated to the Lord. He is holy. And yet, in the presence of perfection, he realizes his filthiness. He realizes his treachery. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I'm undone. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. A couple of things to think about there. These angels, which are so magnificent, and they are servants in flaming fire themselves, according to the scripture. They are, they are the flaming ones, is how they are for, referred to. And yet, the coal from off the altar, where the sacrifice would be made, is so potent, so powerful, that he has to retrieve it with tongs. 
So the flaming one has to use tongs in order to remove this coal. So that tells you the coal's more substantial than he himself is. He brings this to the prophet and touches his lips. Now, just think about literally doing that. Okay? There's going to be a whole ridiculous hysterical reaction to flaming coal touching your lips. But we don't see it here. Just the declaration of you've been made pure. Why? Because our judgment is not unto destruction. The judgment we experience, right, according to Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, is that which is done in the flesh is burned up. And that which is done to the Lord is what remains, and we are rewarded for it. So whatever was unclean was burnt up in the moment. And we don't hear any declaration of pain in the loss. I find a very beautiful picture in that. Because as I consider the presence of the Lord and his eventual judgment of all of us, it's still brings me to a place of reverential fear. Well, what is it that's going to be for us? Well, according to this, just a purging. Just a losing of the things that I've always wanted to lose. A, a, an incinerating of the things that I myself have thought were worthy of incineration. That I've tried and wanted and longed to be freed from. Christ is going to free us from those things we will recognize our sinfulness as he delivers us from it. In verse 8, Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Now, I've heard this preached a lot of times. I want you to notice a couple of things. It's nothing new. I'm not creating anything new out of this. Just notice something here. Whom shall I send? And who will go for us. Then I said, Here am I, send me. Listen, so very often people say that they've heard the Lord send them, but then they're not willing to go themselves. They've heard God say something in their life. And they're not willing to respond. Or there are those that are very willing to go, but they've never been sent. And you can recognize that in the outcome of their ministry. They've been sent, but they're not really, they're reluctant. They're not there because of a personal desire. You can even look at their life and see the calling of the Lord is on this person's life. And yet, as you talk to them, it's as though they don't want to be there. And then you talk to other people that are very anxious to be there, and you're left wondering, did God really send this person? It needs to be both things. Now, let me just say this. If you have a desire to be sent, God desires to send. He, it isn't as though he, he's looking for a special class of person. He'll purify any servant that's willing to go. He will send anyone who's willing to go. But it needs to be those two things coupled together of God sending and the willingness to go that cause the eventuality. He said, go. 
and tell this people. So then comes that message of go. Now that might be go to the other end of the earth. It might be go to the next town. It might be go to your coworkers, your fellow students. It might be go to your family, go to your spouse, go to your children. The answer, if you are saying, send me, and God is saying, I'm sending you, the answer is always going to be go. It's always going to be go. The question is, where? Where is God sending me? Now, the beautiful thing is, probably wherever you are. Probably. That's all it's going to be. Because in whatever area you are, there are people in need. Amen? All around you, you are surrounded by people that need to hear of Jesus Christ. All around us, constantly, people are in need of hearing about Jesus Christ. Letting the Lord send you. Now he says, go and tell this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy. I want you to notice, this is the Lord speaking to Isaiah. You go make the heart of this people dull. You go make the ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and they hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. Why would that be something I would want to do? Because that's obedience to the Lord. These people are living in stark rebellion. You see, as your heart sits there and questions that, like, what? <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. It's because we measure success from a worldly perspective. How many people receive my message? How many people are in my church? How many people will actually kneel down and pray with me? That's not success. Success for the minister, be it the pastor or the person who's just evangelizing their neighbor. Success is found in the obedience. Success is found in the obedience. It isn't in what it produces. This nation at this point, under Isaiah's uh, ministry, is going to reject God. Isaiah is saying, so, okay, I'm ready to go. And the Lord is saying, just be aware that you're going to make uh, the heart of this people dull, their ears heavy, they're going to shut their eyes, lest they see, hear, and understand. Then I said, Lord, how long? That would be the next question, right? <laughs> if this is going to be the summary of my ministry, how long am I going to have to do that? And he answered, until the cities are laid waste and without inhabitants. The houses are without a man. The land is utterly destroyed. Wow. That's an encouraging thought, huh? When the world looks on and summarizes your ministry as an absolute failure, that's when you've nailed it, Isaiah. Wow. That's, that's a heavy passage to consider. But think about this for just a minute, you guys. 
if we don't if we don't declare that message to a world that's going to reject him in judgment that world will forever be able to point at us and say if only you'd told us if we declare the message to the world that rejects him they can't ever say that the reception is their responsibility and i'll just let the cat out of the bag. We get to the end and there's a small remnant. Okay? We preach to the remnant. Be it large or small, that's who we preach to. If if you know, if we're a mega church, praise God, we're preaching to the remnant because by and large, 310 million Americans, 80% of them still say they're Christians. Does that sound right to you? Not as I look around. I don't look around my culture and think 80% of these people are in love with Jesus. I can just tell. I don't think that at all. Right? I'm, I'm thinking, man, if 10% of these people love Jesus, it's a miracle. It's a miracle. There's a remnant, and that's who we preach to. And God has to sort out who is and who ain't, right? My pastor has said for many years, you know, there's only three types of people. Them's that is, them's that ain't, them's that thinks they is but ain't. And that's, that's the summary of humanity. We're called to preach to all of them. All of them. If they close their ears... That is between them and the Lord. How long? Until it's utterly desolate. The Lord, verse 12, has removed men far away. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. But yet a tenth will be in it and will return and be for consuming. Terebinth tree as or as an oak whose stump remains when it is cut down, so the holy seed shall be its stump. Isn't that always amazing? I've seen it a lot, having worked in tree service, but you cut down a cluster of, you know, birch trees and um, come back a year later, years later, and there's that little stand of trees coming up out of that. You know, there are all these little wisps of tree that have taken over where the stump was left. That's what's being described here. Everything's going to be just cut down to where everyone will be looking at it and thinking like nothing left. Every, everything's been consumed. It's done. God is saying, no, there's a seed within it that's going to grow back. There is a shoot that will spring up and produce life again. God is so good and so faithful. I, 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 unfortunately, I'm very human, very judgmental. And, uh, you know, I've gotten to the point with certain people over the years, you, you minister and they just become the dull of heart, heavy beer, you know, shut their eyes. And you just kind of, you know, dust yourself off and say, I've done everything I could. Having been at this since I was 19, I've 
turned around decades later and seen people on fire for the Lord and realized, oh, there's, there's one I wrote off years ago who is in love with the Lord and serving the Lord. And, you know, it, I got to confess. I mean, you guys can pray for me. There have been a couple of times where in my arrogance, I, you know, get to talk to those people and, you know, basically act like, you know, so what was it about my ministry that caused you to, you know, finally catch on fire? And their confession was, I don't even remember your ministry, you know. <laughs> did, did you minister to me? You know, I guess not. I guess the Holy Spirit was ministering to you. Praise God. Resurrecting what no human could do. Creating in someone that seed that will spring forth from the stump. It's a glorious, wonderful thing. Chapter 7, verse 1. Now it came to pass the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that resin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramallah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to make war against it, but could not prevail against it. You can review that in 2 Kings chapter 16. Now in the days of Ahaz, son of Jotham, Ahaz was a wicked king of Judah, worshiping other gods, even sacrificing his son to Molech. You can see that in 2 Kings uh, 16 verses 1 through 4. The only good thing Ahaz seemed to do was Father Hezekiah, who became you know, a very good king in uh, Judah. So you have that history. Ahaz uh, was saved uh, from the attack because he made uh, an ungodly alliance with Tiglag-Pileser. Uh, you might want to put your bookmark there and turn to 2 Kings chapter 16, beginning at verse 7. I'll read it to you, where it says, So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and save me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel, who rise up against me. Ahaz took silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasury of the king's house, and sent it as a present to the king of Assyria. So the king of Assyria heeded him, for the king of Assyria went up against Damascus and took it and carried its people captive to Kerr and killed Rezin. The tragedy here, we'll examine a little more, is that Ahaz is relying upon Tiglath-Pileser rather than the Lord. It's, a, it's an unholy alliance that costs him. So back in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 2, it was told to the house of David, saying, Serious forces are deployed in Ephraim. And that's another name for Israel you're going to see repeatedly. So his heart and the heart of his people were moved as the trees of the woods are moved with the wind. So rather than being steadfast, rather than being strong, this tragic news comes and you can just see all of them wilting under the pressure is what's being described there. You, know, you think about what James is saying there in the first chapter 
where he says, you know, does any of you lack wisdom? Let him ask of God who gives generously to all. But let that man believe and not doubt. That man should not think he'll receive anything. He's an unstable man in all of his ways, blown and tossed like the waves of the sea. The person that doubts. Blown and tossed like the waves of the sea. Uh, the Lord is our rock. The Lord is our refuge. And when we ground ourselves upon him, even when the overwhelming news comes, there is a stability, even if we're crushed to tears in the moment and wail out loud with our voice, there is a foundation that we rest upon. Not so here. The news comes and they are swaying with it. Their hearts and the heart of the people are all moved by this. This alliance that Ahaz makes with Tiglag-Pileser as he goes to Damascus, Ahaz sees the pagan altars and the forms of worship. He comes back to Israel and remodels the temple and the worship after what he's seen there. He is so easily swayed by his circumstances that when he is reliant upon military strength and political prowess rather than the sure-fired stability and trustworthiness of God, he takes the whole nation a direction spiritually that ends up being completely tragic. He models the worship of Jehovah after the worship of pagan gods. He leads the people astray. And then you know, ultimately suffers the consequence as a nation. 7 verse 3, Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out now to meet Ahaz, you and Shir Jashub, your son. Now, Shir Jashub means a remnant shall return. So as he introduces his son, he's prophesying over what will be the eventual history of the nation at the end of the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field if you're thinking is that someplace significant that we need to know all the details about no but it's a real place this isn't fiction this is history this is a literal location there's a remarkable thing about the word of God that every passing year becomes more and more evident to the men and women of science. Its accuracy in describing history is unparalleled. Okay, and to put this in place, there are many historians that have written that you would think that as they wrote, their accounts of locations and kings and circumstances and money systems and trade and would be as accurate as the scripture. And they're not. They're wildly inaccurate. Historians of the day were not keeping records anywhere near not even anywhere near as accurate as the word of God. 
misspelling, mispronunciations, assigning kings to wrong countries, historians. That, that's led to centuries of confusion in archaeological work as people are trusting more you know, the works of Josephus than they are the accounts of the New Testament and later discovering, oh, wait a second. There's a superiority here in the word of God that outshines everything else. The men and women who have worked within their various fields and relied upon the word of God have found a remarkably higher degree of success in their findings. What, what they have discovered is a perfect accuracy to the scripture. The flaw is their understanding of it. That's the only discrepancy. As time passes, these things are confirmed. So here, this description of the aqueduct, the upper pool, the highway, and the fuller's field, it's a literal place. Meet him there. Say to him, notice these things, you guys. Ready? Take heed. Right? So don't miss this. Pay attention. You know, Jesus would say in the New Testament, verily, verily, you know, they get the attention. You know, if you're just in a conversation with somebody and, you know, suddenly somebody says, hey, you know, saying it locks you up. Or, what did I miss? I feel like I'm in trouble. You are. Now, pay attention. That's, that's exactly what the prophet is doing here. He's saying, take heed to what I'm about to tell you. Be quiet. Do not fear or be faint-hearted. In other words, you are all of these things. Cut it out. Stop these things. Be quiet. Do not fear or be faint-hearted. For these two stubs of a smoking firebrands, for the fierce anger of resin and Syria, the sons of Ramallah. This, this whole thing that it just seems so potent. So unthinkably powerful. I don't even know how to put it into a modern perspective. You know, I mean, would we say something like, you know, you want to be very aware of the dangers of Hezbollah and ISIS. You know, these are very real problems in our culture. And what the Lord describes them as is two candle wicks that have been blown out and the smoke is curling off from them. Does that sound dangerous to you? Right? Does that cause you to shudder? That's, that's literally the description the Lord puts to them. They're stubs of smoking firebrands. This is the sort of thing that's so dangerous that when you encountered them, you'd probably deal with them by going like, and, and, and putting them out. The danger is that the stench of the smoke is going to drive you nuts. And you're going to have to snuff out these smoking firebrands. That's, this is the Lord's perspective, right? To everyone else, they're looking at like global terroristic threat of apocalyptic level. And the Lord says, yeah, like a candle that just got blown out. It's interesting how the Lord views things and we view things, right? 
You know, we read somebody's life history and think, wow, that was amazing. And the Lord summarizes them as they were born and did evil in the sight of the Lord and then died. That's, that's his entire summary of their life. This was their father, and this is when they were born, and they did evil as their father did and then died. God is unconcerned about them. The, the concern that Ahaz has at the moment is what's compelling him into ungodly situations. His fear is what's causing him to make this alliance. This, this alliance is going to cost him everything. Because Syria, Ephraim, and the sons of Ramallah have plotted evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and trouble it, and let us make a gap in its wall for ourselves. You know, division, we're going to create for ourselves this king over them, the son of Tabal. We're going we're to create division and we're going to set up our own authority. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. This is, you've heard this? You understand this is the plot? You know, they've published their manifesto, and this is what they're going to carry out? Not going to happen. It is not going to happen. You know, you hear all the bluster and all of the treachery that's going on right now in Moscow and Russia and Syria and Damascus. Boy, it doesn't sound much different than what we're reading. And then you read Ezekiel chapter 38 and you go, hey, nothing to worry about. God is going to crush those guys. He's going to set a hook in the jaw, going to draw them right down, drive them right in the face. <laughs> That's simply how, I mean, fire is going to rain from the sky and kill them all. That's how it's going to go. I mean, it's interesting to watch it build up, but it's kind of anticlimactic when you know how it's going to turn out. This is what the Lord is saying to this king. It's not going to go fast. For the head of Syria is Damascus. The head of Damascus is resin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be broken, Israel, the north, so that it will not be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria. And Samaria is Ramallah's son. If you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. I want you to know something here, okay? God does not say, if you do not believe, it will not come to pass. Because it does come to pass, and he doesn't believe. What's going on is God saying to him, if you do not believe, you will not be made steadfast. If you don't believe, you're not going to be established. The circumstances are going to transpire according to what I'm saying and according to my will. But if you do not believe, you're not going to be established. Doubt. Doubt is the enemy of faith. Because he trusted in men rather than God, they would eventually be taken into captivity and only that remnant that he referred to would return. There's no establishment. 7 verse 10. Moreover, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, 
ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Ask it either in the depths or in the heights above. Now, before we move forward, there are some things you really need to pay attention to. You've read this prophecy. You've heard Old Testament and New Testament. There are really some very interesting things to pay attention to here. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. It sounds good as Ahaz is saying, I'll not ask because I don't want to test the Lord. Really what he's saying is, I'm not going to ask because then I would have to live up to it. That's literally what he's saying. God is saying, test me. And he's acting like, oh, I couldn't possibly do that. When really what it is, is the Lord says, test me, ask me for a sign. And he's saying, I'm not making this up. I don't want to live that way. I, I don't, I, I understand what you're saying. I appreciate who you are and what you are, but I, I really don't want to live that way. Where, where you give me a sign and then I need to live according to that sign. I'm, I'm not interested in that lifestyle. Ha, do you know people or have you been this person? Where God is saying, stop doing that. Live my way. Let me bless you. A ask what you want and and... And the response is, I really want to live that way. That's exactly what is going on here. Then he said, here now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men? But will you weary my God also? Get a, the, the English language loses it as far as its potency right here. Because basically what Ahaz is saying is, I don't believe God. That's what he's saying. He just said, none of this is going to come to pass. He's like a, a smoking candle. We'll put him out. All the plans, not going to happen. Ask me for a sign. I really don't want to live that way. Do you really need to make me so weary? Right? If you've spent your life trying to prove to someone that you're honest, that you do not lie, that you're a person of your word, and years have passed, and they're saying, I still don't really trust you. You've been nothing but reliable. You come to a point with that relationship where you're like, I don't even want to try it with this person. I'm not even going to try to convince them. This is what Ahaz is doing with God, and it's what the nation of Israel is doing with God. And that's why God is saying, you're just wearing me out. You're just I've been nothing but faithful to you, and you're standing here as I'm challenging you. I'm saying to you, ask anything of me, and you're like, nah, I don't really want to live that way. God is, <laughs> I don't mean to, say it this way, but he's as human as you and I in certain ways, you know, where he's like, man, you are wearing me out. I've proven myself to you endlessly, and you don't even want to rely upon me. This is exhausting me. I said, God, 
exposes himself that way. Yeah. Will you weary my God? Also, you're going to just wear me out. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Now, this is a wildly contested passage of Scripture, so we're just going to plow through a couple aspects of it here. There, there is almost always when prophecy is given, there is a local fulfillment where it takes place right there in the circumstance, and then there is the eventual fulfillment. So in every prophecy within the Scripture, you have those at least dual understanding. Sometimes they, they have like a triune understanding. There's a local fulfillment where some very exact things happen right there where the prophet was speaking. Then there's the continual fulfillment that goes on throughout history of something that God has established as a principle within the prophecy. And then there's the future thing that's going to happen, you know, during the tribulation or during Jesus Christ's millennial reign or, or at the end of all creation. So, so often it isn't just here. Let me tell you how something's going to unfold right here. It has multiple facets to it. This has at least the two contained within it. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, firstly, this term, the virgin, means sexually pure without ever having had intercourse with a man at all. In the Old Testament, it is only used to mean sexually being a virgin. That's it. It can't be interpreted any other way. So all of the, you know, knowers and thinkers that want to argue about that, I can agree that when you get to the New Testament, there are some occasions where the term does mean a young maiden. But not in the Old Testament. And certainly not within this context. And then add to that that it is confirmed in the New Testament to refer to Mary, who was sexually pure and a virgin and conceived uh, Jesus. Why are we even having a discussion about whether this is talking about sexual purity? Because people don't want to believe in the miracle. That's all. They don't want to believe in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. And that's the only reason that they even try to make a contest over this. So we're talking about the virgin. And his name will be called Emmanuel. Verse 15, curds and honey he shall eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and the good, the land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings. So the, the, the current fulfillment that's going to take place is essentially this. Look around you. He's saying, look for a young woman who is about to give birth. That child, right? There's, you know, in a culture this big at this time, for the king to think in his mind, he's probably got somebody within his family who's about to give birth. Before that child can grow to eating whole food, that is beyond what today we might describe as baby food, right? Before they can be, you know, the, the weaning perhaps has taken place or is taking place, but they're not eating steak yet. 
Okay, there's still a child. So, so he's saying to the king, I'm going to give you a sign. Think about a child that's about to be born. When that child is born, before it can be weaned from the curds and honey, before it can move into adult food, these two kings that you're so afraid of are going to be wiped out. They're not even going to be anymore. So the, the local fulfillment is that idea of look around you. Look for maybe even that day, right? He gets this prophecy and maybe that day a child is born and his family. Some niece has you know, a child born. Some family member has a child born. And, and it sticks in his mind. And he watches the child grow. And before that child can even get to the place where it's moved out of the Gerber baby food, the kings are gone. The great worry that they were so concerned about is no more. Think about the changes that have taken place in our life, you guys. Some of you can look back further, right? Berlin Wall falls. That thing stood as a monument of tyranny for so long. Gone, right? 9-11, Twin Towers, gone. Look at the changes that have taken place, right? The countries that were unheard of, that are now like tremendously feared, or the countries that were tremendously feared that today are unheard of. God can accomplish work so fast, just so fast. Mankind loves to think of itself like God, like we're immovable, we're eternal, we're going to be on the scene forever. And wait a minute, we don't even exist anymore. Gone. Gone from the scene. This is how quick God changes circumstances. Now, the term Emmanuel. Two things to discuss there. God is saying to Ahaz in the moment, you're acting like I'm not there. You're relying upon these other countries, like I'm not capable of taking care of you. I'm going to wipe those other countries out. And because you didn't rely upon me, because you relied upon the Assyrians, they're going to come down and they're going to be your captors. If they had not relied upon, how many times you guys has the thing we've relied upon been our Achilles heel in the end? The Lord is saying to him, this child, locally at this time, this child you're going to watch grow up, that's going to prove to you that God is with you. It isn't God's fault. You're wearing me out with that whole thing, acting like I'm not here to support you. You're wearing me out with that. This child, you're going to mark time according to this child. And by the time that child is just starting to get weaned, I'm going to have wiped out those problems. And that's going to be a proof to you that God is with you. The problem isn't, you know, the problem isn't, oh, why, where's God? Why wasn't God with me? That's not the problem. The problem is you're not with God. That's what the Lord is saying to this king right now. Your problem is you're not with God. The problem is that you've been whining all along the way like I'm not with you. That's not the problem. The problem is you're not with God. Oh, how poignant. How poignant to read things such as this. Matthew chapter 1 verses 22 and 23. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin 
shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Jesus is God. Jesus is God. God with us. You know, the evidence, Ahaz, Ahaz acting like God isn't with me. If God was only with me, the world acting like there's no God. God's dead. If God was with us, how could these terrible things be happening? It's the same thing. The same thing Ahaz is saying, we whine. Why isn't God with me? 717, the Lord will bring the king of Assyria upon you and your people and your father's house. Days that have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, Assyria, the very thing they trusted in, will be their downfall. It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will whistle for the fly that is in the farthest part of the rivers of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. They will come, all of them will rest in the desolate valleys and the clefts of the rock and all the thorns and in their pastures, the same day the Lord will shave with a hired razor with those from beyond the river, with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the legs, and they will remove the beard. Being shaven in this way was the ultimate sign of humiliation and slavery. Okay, Somebody in this Oriental culture, completely shaven. Okay, they don't have to put you in an orange jumpsuit that has, you know, Hancock County Jail, you know, painted across the shoulders, so everybody knows that's a prisoner. If you're completely shaven, everybody goes, "That's a slave." That person is owned by somebody else. That's what God is saying. The day is coming where. You're going to become so obviously enslaved, everyone will be able to recognize. Sends a shudder through their hearts and minds to hear this. It shall be in that day that a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep. So it shall be for the abundance of milk they give that they will eat curds. For curds and honey, everyone will eat who is left in the land. It shall happen in that day that wherever... There could be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver. It will be for briars and thorns. With arrows and bows, men will come there because all the land will become briars and thorns. And to any hill which could be dug with a hoe, you will not go there for fear of briars and thorns. But it will become a range of oxen and a place for sheep to roam. All this rich agricultural land will be lost to become hay fields for grazing animals. Their great agrarian society is just going to collapse because of war and then become completely overgrown with thorns and thistles so that people, for fear of invasion and fear of the land being hostile, the, the greatest thing they're going to do in the area is just graze milk-yielding cows and goats so that they can have curds and cheese and whey and you know collect natural honey. It's, it, it, you have to understand um, the level of collapse you're talking about. 
for for a culture that you know would make thousands upon thousands in a single vineyard with choice vine and excellent grapes and wine and raisins yielded from it and all these different various types of vegetation and growth and you know economy it's going to come right down to it the whole land's just going to become one giant desolate pasture that's what the whole place is going to be what a tragedy what a tragedy to watch a nation so profoundly blessed by the Lord just through one man's leadership, one man's leadership, rather than being reliant upon the Lord, trusting in the strength of other nations and military power, rather than the surety of God, the nation was reduced to a worthlessness of slavery. That's tragic. Tragic. I pray for our nation that we don't follow in the same footsteps, that we avoid the history that we've been able to see. Why we don't learn from it, then we're doomed to repeat it. So pray. We'll stand and we'll pray, and then we'll pick up with uh, chapter 8 next week. Father God, we are so grateful for your love. Love that would record a message such as that doesn't paint your children, doesn't paint humanity in a glorifying way. It's not flattering at all. It's truthful. It's abrasive. It's harsh and difficult. So loving. So loving of you to record this message for anyone who would declare themselves to be a child of God. That we would have the opportunity to follow you, even if our whole nation does not. Lord, that we could be the remnant, those who loved you and sought you with all of our heart, soul, and mind. Give us the strength of your spirit, Lord that we would not be bent and swayed by the winds that swirl around us, that we would rest upon the foundation and rock that is Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. Please stay in fellowship as long as you would like.